Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this uh, Sabbath afternoon. We pray and ask that you would bless us as we look into our past, as we understand things. Lord, may we be impressed by your spirit, um, whatever we need to understand. Lord, thank you so much that you desire to give us the kingdom. More and more, Lord, may heaven be in our hearts. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, let's go to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says right here in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of who? To all the who? Saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Paul is writing this wonderful letter of, the, of Philippians to who? Let me read it one more time. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. So who is he writing this letter to? He's writing to the saints, right? Now notice what the Bible says next. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go all the way to verse 6. Here's a very familiar verse to you and to me. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of who? Jesus Jesus Christ. And he essentially tells the believers, he said, I want you to understand something, and that is this, you are a work in progress. Amen? Amen? Now let me ask you a question. Who was Paul writing this letter to? Let me ask one more time. Who was he writing this letter to? Now I want you to notice what he says. He says, you are a work in progress. We begin to understand something about Paul's definition of saints. It's not someone who has a halo over their head and lives in an orphanage in India ministering to the poor, although that person is probably, you know, could be a saint. But I want you to understand something. According to Paul, his definition of a saint is somebody who has Christ in their life and is a work in progress. Can you say amen to that? Now I want you to turn to your brother or sister next to you. I want you to say, you are a saint of God. Go ahead and do that right now. All right. Some of you guys added a little bit preamble there. Like, I'm not sure if I should say this, but you are a saint of God. Now you may hear something like this and you may be like, really? But when you study out what Paul is saying, being confident of this very thing, he who started a good work in you will complete it. Amen? And we praise God, sanctification is a work of a lifetime. This message is entitled James and Ellen White, and it is a a sermon about their love story. It's very interesting, when you actually study out the antediluvian world, or the world that existed before the flood, the people living during that time, the sons of Seth who were righteous and were part of building the ark, They believed the world was going to end essentially in their time. Enoch was even given visions about the final, you know, moments of the end time when Jesus returns in all his glory. Yet regardless of the dynamics of living in the world at those times, regardless of the urgency that was taking place, many of the sons of Seth, the righteous were still participating in the act of marriage. 
And the reason why that's important for you and for me is we need to understand a little bit what Ellen White says right here. She says these words. In regard to marriage, I would say read the word of God. Can you say amen to that? Even in this time, the last days of the world's history marriages take place among Seventh-day Adventists. We have, as a people, never forbidden marriage, except in cases where there is an obvious reason, there were obvious reasons that marriage would be misery to both parties. And even then, we have only advised and counseled. Here we begin to understand something, that even though we are moving closer and closer to the final moments, in which the great controversy begins to climax in the events that take place in Revelation 13 and parts of 14. Here we understand that marriage is not something to be forbidden amongst God's people. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. I have heard so many people say, well, I don't know if I should get married. We are living at the very end of time. I want you to know something. Unless probation has closed and the Sunday law has started, it's okay to get married. Can you say amen to that? I mean, when the Sunday law is happening, you're being persecuted. I mean, I probably think, hey, wait a minute, let's, double, let's think about this a little bit more, right? I mean, people are trying to kill you. <laughs> Anyhow, when you study out the story of Ellen and James White, you learn that they lived during the Victorian age. And it's very interesting. The Victorian age or the Victorian area had this kind of mixture of beliefs in regard to marriage. In fact, I wrote this down. In the unique culture of the Victorian area, the opposing dynamics of Puritanism and Mormonism. Puritans believed in celibacy and they believed even though they were people who were compatible for marriage, it would be best if they remained celibate. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you had Mormonism, which was promoting this idea of polygamy. And so in this soil is, how, is, is where James and White, James and Ellen White came together. I'll continue reading. What's the love story of James and Ellen White? Though fraught with many challenges, the union of these young revolutionaries gives tremendous insight into the lessons of God. In addition, the records provide details of the humanity of the early church pioneers and their examples of genuine biblical love. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a good look at the Facebook, Facebook account of Ellen G. White. Okay? Let's look in her about section. Let's understand a little bit about this young woman. And this is what I wrote. She was evangelizing before she was called to prophetic ministry. Age 15, she gained assurance of her salvation, immediately began leading other teens and young marrieds to Christ. She was not only working with youth, she was also leading young adults into a saving knowledge of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? She was called to prophetic ministry. She had a great vision of, of what was taking place after the great disappointment and saw God's people on a journey and thus began the process in which God was calling her for a grand purpose. We continue. 17th birthday, November 6, 1844. 17, her first vision took place in late December. She saw her primary, primary identity as a disciple and lover of Jesus. She saw her primary work as bringing others to love and to serve him too. Can you say amen to that? 
All right, let's push pause there. Let's open up the Facebook account of James White. Born August 4th, 1821, in the middle child of nine. Talk about someone with maybe middle child issues, right? <laughs> Age seven, he was physically feeble, with poor eyesight. His eyes would cross when he tried to read. Instead of attending school, he worked on the farm, became six feet tall and exceptionally strong. He was told that he, it was said about him that he had a very strong constitution. There was this vigor and strength in his life. Age 18, his vision actually became normal. Very interesting. Age 19, he entered first grade and in 12 weeks earned a certificate to teach elementary school. Fall of 1840, education was much different back then, right? <laughs> Fall of 1840 became teacher of a country school. Now what is very interesting is that there were commonalities between Ellen and James White. Well, what are those commonalities that existed in their life, their background? The first one is this, both he and Ellen White were, excuse me, both he and Ellen were born in small towns in Maine. Both their fathers were early engaged in farming and later moved into manufacturing. Both had fathers who were devout lay leaders in their respective churches and were noted for their personal spirituality. Both came from very godly families. This is how they came into the world, and this was part of their heritage. Both came from large families. Both had parents who were deeply pessimistic about their children's prospects. It was a very hard time. And when they saw their children with disability and issues and realized what was up against them, they were not very hopeful about their futures. We continue. Both had early health problems that interfered with formal schooling and limited their prospects for success in life. Ellen actually had an accident you might be familiar with, age nine, that interrupted her schooling. James had an illness before age three left him with cross eyes. That the formal schooling was impractical. impractical. He worked on his father's farm until age 19 when he spent 12 weeks in grade school. Go to the very last part. Ellen's parents were told that she was ruined by her accident. James' illness had cut off his parents' hopes for his life. Very interesting. Both James and Ellen White actually had a high regard for education and were both largely self-educated. Both were very intense readers. They loved to read. Continue. She recalled it was the hardest struggle of her young life to yield to her feebleness and decide that she must leave her studies and give up hopes of gaining an education. James also struggled for months between his love of education and his convictions of, to, to, uh, as a, convictions of a call to preach before he finally gave it all, all for Christ and his gospel and found peace and freedom. They were both also acquainted with depression on account of their personal trials. After her accident destroyed her physical attractiveness, Ellen felt that the idea of carrying, her her, uh, carrying my misfortune throughout, through life was insupportable. Both James' eyesight cleared up, restoring his potential to become a man. He confessed that he had viewed himself as nearly worthless in the world and regretted his existence. So here you begin to see the challenges that existed in their lives. Here you begin to see what they were faced up, faced against. 
Yeah, I love what God does. He takes the weak things of the world and he makes it strong for his glory and for his cause. Amen? We continue. It was during this time that a preacher by the name of William Miller began to preach powerfully, began to tell people about this powerful prophecy found in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, called the 2300-day prophecy. Now, we all know what the 2300-day prophecy is. Longest, do we all know what it is? Amen. Amen. If you don't know what it is, you've got to talk to somebody and say, hey, I want you to tell me about the 2300-day prophecy, the longest time prophecy in Scripture. It has to do with our time. It is a very powerful prophecy. And it began to revolutionize the world. Many people, not just in America, South America, all the way to the Middle East, parts of Asia, all begin to understand something big was going to happen at the conclusion of this prophecy. And it was many people that were revitalized in their Christian walk. And it was also during this time, after the date came to pass, many people were disappointed. And this young woman, Ellen Harmon, had a powerful vision in which God began to show her the journey of the Advent people, the people who would follow Bible truth, people who would follow the path that God laid before them through many trials and tribulations and would be the people who go to the very end of time. She began to share what God had brought before her. And as she began to share, others began to hear about it. And sure enough, there was a young man by the name of James White who happened to hear her report on one of her visions. During 1845, Ellen Harmon was invited to share her early visions with Adventist groups in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. James White, six years older than Ellen, became convinced that her visions were genuine and that her message of encouragement was needed. And so James White entered young Ellen's life but not with romantic thoughts at first. Here was a man. I'm too tired to respond right now. So, here was a man who was convicted about the second coming of Jesus. Here was a man that was inspired by the prophecies of Scripture. And as he heard these messages, he found them to be lined up with what Scripture was teaching and proclaiming. And as he heard these messages, he was inspired by this young woman. Very interesting. Ellen White, as she began to share her visions, 1845 was a very rough time because if you were caught sharing heresy, sharing things that were not conventional and normal, with, West, with, with what the rest of Christendom was teaching and preaching, they would stone you, they would drive you out of the towns. So, in 1845, there was a lot of prejudice and sometimes even mob violence against Millerites, people who believed in the prophecies that William Miller was proclaiming from the book of Daniel. And you had Baptists, you had Catholics, you had Methodists, you had Anglicans. So you were dealing with a group of people from different denominations who all begin to be identified as Millerites. Why? Because they loved the prophecies that were found in the book of Daniel. She was accompanied by Sarah Jordan, another Millerite. But what could Sarah do against the mob? 
So James White offered his horse and sleigh for transportation and also volunteered to arrange and organize her meetings. For three months, they traveled holding meetings every day, almost every day. Thus, they visited most of the Advent bands in Maine and eastern New Hampshire. Here we begin to see James White now offering to be a, a sort of big brother to this group of people that were traveling with Ellen White sharing. And you know, there's something that happens when young adults begin to hang out with each other, isn't there? There's something that begins to take place. They begin to sort of notice each other. And, you know, they begin to catch the eye of somebody. And sure enough, though, there was still a pure love, a holy love that existed. But nonetheless, God seemed to be working in the details. James and Ellen White began to spend a little bit more time together. In fact, some of the you know, documents that we have of friends who were living during that time and were part of that very experience, they were recording that James and Ellen White would sometimes go on walks together. Uh, sure enough, they had chaperones following close behind them. <laughs> but they noticed there seemed to be this, this kind of chemistry, although that word wasn't being used in that way during that time, but they began to notice there was a kind of chemistry that began to take place. In fact, what is very interesting is that there were other individuals that would sometimes show up and offer to take Ellen White all around those states. I read one book, actually not too long ago, where this one gentleman showed up to Ellen Harmon's house with a brand new carriage, seemed to have lots of money. And as she was sharing the message, he went to her and he said, look, I will take you wherever you want to go. I will take you to whatever town you want to go. You will be very careful. But she understood God was leading her in another direction. And she simply tells him, the Lord is not leading me in that direction. This is what friend zone is called. <laughs> friend zoning. It happened back then and it happens today, right? Imagine being friend-zoned by a prophet, right? <laughs> as Ellen White, as Ellen Harmon and James White begin to spend time together, rumors begin to circulate about their connection. And this was during the Victorian era where it was not considered always a good thing for a male to be walking with a woman together. And so as James White was hanging out with this band of people, as he would travel from place to place, rumors begin to spread, rumors begin to circulate. And so they had no choice. James White came to Ellen White, Ellen Harmon, and he said to her, he said, I can no longer be with you because of the rumors that are circulating. That moment, Ellen White was, Ellen, I keep saying Ellen White, we'll just say Ellen White as meaning Ellen Harmon prior to her marriage, okay? <laughs> And so she was a bit discouraged. The very next day, James comes to her before he's about to take off, and he says, hey, look, I have figured out how we can solve this problem. And I'm not mincing words when I say this. He, the way he argued his case was purely from a practical standpoint. And he essentially told her, there is one way that we can deal with this problem, and that is if we get married. But I don't want you in any way to 
underestimate that there wasn't still feelings that were taking place because we actually have some documents in which Ellen White, after she was initially told by James White that, hey, I can't spend time with you because of the rumors that are circulating, I can't travel with you, that she felt very disappointed because she could not think of somebody else that she would want to travel with their group. I.e., meaning, I kind of like this guy. <laughs> now, I'm obviously putting a little bit of a modern construction on this, but nonetheless, I think we can understand the, 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 what was taking place there. But however, there was a problem. Here was the problem. Many of these Millerites, now being called Adventists, still this loosely connected group of people, they didn't really buy into the marriage idea. They believed that the second coming was just a matter of weeks away. And so they thought the idea of marriage was not a good thing. In fact, this is what Ellen White says, as for marriage, we never thought of it because we thought the Lord would come very soon. James White, even before he began to spend time with Ellen White and things began to change in his mind, he wrote to two other Adventists because they were getting married and he told them how much he was disappointed in them. In fact, I actually have what he says. James Wright wrote in 1845 of two Adventists who had gotten married. He said that they had denied their faith in being published for marriage. In other words, when you got married, you published a band which simply said to the community, hey, these two people are getting married. We all look on it as a wile of the devil. The firm brethren in Maine who are waiting for Christ to come have no fellowship with such a move. You know what's really interesting? Have you ever had a friend that says to you, I will never get married? And they become the first one to get married? <laughs> but nonetheless, we do see a conviction that was present, and that is they believed that the second coming of Jesus was very eminent. They believed it was literally weeks away. And so they were making life decisions that were based upon this understanding. However, as the delay took place, as God began to work and orchestrate certain dynamics, Ellen and James began to spend more time together. Ellen and James began to realize it is probably a good thing for them to get married. In fact, there are a few factors that actually changed their mind in regards to marriage. Here they are. Number one, despite their carefulness to never travel alone, rumors begin to circulate. Number two, Ellen White being five foot two, 80 pounds, tuberculosis, frequently fainting, needing a strong escort and a legal protector. Number three, they shared a commitment to shepherding the scattered Adventists. Number four, Ellen had received a vision assuring her that she could trust James White. Wow. In individual prayer, they each became convinced that they could serve God more effectively married than single. And here you begin to see Ellen and James White as God begin to bring things together that their team, their synergy could be much more effective than each one of these individually. Amen. You know, it's really interesting. There are horses in Canada that when they pull weight, they can pull a lot of weight. But pulling weight together, they can actually pull a combined sum that is greater than a combined total that is greater than the sum of what they could do individually. So it's very remarkable. 
Here we begin to see as Ellen and James begin to come together, as things begin to change, as the dynamics begin to change, we do still see a purity of motive that was behind their traveling, a purity of motive that seemed to be part of their life. But as things begin to change, as the dynamics begin to change, they realize it was a good thing to get married. We'll continue. Those that were surrounded by Ellen and James, they talked about their marriage. In fact, there was an individual who interviewed someone who was very close to Ellen and James during this time. L.H. Christian, a longtime church leader, recalled a conversation with a woman who in her early youth had played together with young Ellen and remembered her sad accident. When Christian asked her of what she remembered about Ellen as a young woman, she responded with a smile. Well, that is an interesting story which I delight to tell. James was older than Ellen, about six years. We were young people there together. Their friendship was a model and an inspiration to us all, and their marriage a most beautiful and happy event. You know what's so powerful about young adult couples? Is when they are doing ministry together. Amen? Amen? As a pastor, when I was pastoring a church, one of the saddest things that I saw, when you would have the spouse of one individual there at church, worshiping God, trying to be involved, and their husband or wife was nowhere to be seen because they had no love for God, no love for the church, no love for ministry. And they would be there afterwards and the sermon was done to come up to the pastor to pray for their spouse. Friends, you have time right now to prevent that from ever happening to you. Amen? Amen. People can still make their decisions at any time. But nonetheless, when we follow the counsels that are given to us, we can understand that God wants our happiness. It may require some patience. may require, uh, you know, you waiting a little bit longer. But like I like to say, better for you to be with the right kind of person for 40 years than being with the wrong person for about 60 years. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Let's continue. Another person said this. They were talking. This was a description of what the public said about Ellen and James White. But this individual said this. As man and wife, they were a unique and strong gospel team. Their method and division of work was perfect. Adventists have never had their equal. This is really amazing. This is what other people were saying about this tag team that was going around doing ministry together. It's a powerful thing. We'll continue. James and Ellen White did many great things. They began to set up publishing houses, and the structure of the Adventist church began to grow as people began to come in to this great faith. As, you know, the church began to solidify, as doctrines became more established with Bible study, the church itself was growing very rapidly. And Ellen and James White played a powerful foundational role throughout that time. Now somebody says, wait a minute, what do you know about their bedroom life? Well, actually no one asked that. I asked that question, <laughs> to be honest. No one's ever asked me that question. But anyways, I was doing some research. I came across this quote and I want to share it with you. And this is what it says. Ellen White was writing a letter to her husband. 
And if this is something I was never meant to read, I hope when we meet in heaven one day, she'll forgive me. All right. <laughs> At one time, because of the demands of the work which she and her husband were engaged, a half a continent separated them. She confided in a letter to James. We feel every day a most earnest desire for a more sacred nearness to God. This is my prayer. When I lie down, when I awake in the night, when I arise in the morning, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, I sleep alone. This seems to be Mary's preference as well as mine. I can have a better opportunity for reflection and prayer. I prize my being all to myself, unless graced with your presence. And then notice what she says next. I want to share my bed only with you. Woo-hoo-hoo. A little hot in here, isn't it? But we see that Ellen and James White really had a deep affection for each other. You know, sometimes in the Amer uh, American culture, we have this idea, not sometimes, a lot of times, we have this idea that it's love that leads to marriage. In the Indian culture, at least in some of the traditional areas, you actually have this idea that it's marriage that leads to love. And that works, obviously, with the people that have that kind of ethic and belief system. But it's important to see that this world has changed. We don't live in an agrarian society again where, you know, your parents can go talk to the parents of another farmer and somehow an arrangement can take place. We are dealing with very different kinds of dynamics in regards to young adults and romance. But I believe God is working through all these things. Amen? Amen. Continue. James and Ellen White. End up having four children. Two of those children died at a very early age. But the other two, and I really like this picture. Look at this picture of this guy. He's got a mischievous look on his face, right? <laughs> Every time I see this picture, I'm like, this guy had a mischievous look. And Ellen White actually writes about this young son and some of the things that he would do. But her children that did grow up to a, an old age were faithful to God and faithful to the mission of the church. And with the early Adventists helped build the ark. It's very interesting. James White, age of 60, he passed away. This man, who was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, this man that gave his heart, his mind, soul to the Adventist Church, passed away. I found um, this write-up on James White, and it's very interesting, and this is what it says. James White was a talented and capable executive missionary, executive missionary leader and powerful public evangelist. Not only did he participate with William Miller, Joseph Bates, and scores of other preachers in announcing the advent of our Lord near in the 1840s, but he outlived the Millerite movement to become the first great apostle of the Seventh-day Adventist cause. James White died August 6, 1880, 1881, when he was only 60. He literally worked himself to death. The brethren leaned on him so heavily that his towering figure fell. His 60 years of life were spent unselfishly and sacrificially. No other Seventh-day Adventist minister did more than he to build up high principle and efficiency into the life of our churches and our institutions. Can you say amen to that? What a powerful life that was lived. A man who gave everything for the cause of God. But you see, Ellen White, now she was alone, still had her great work to do. 
And some of the greatest conflicts in the church were still to come in a few years from there. But nonetheless, God prepared the way. And God would use various other individuals to help preach the cause so that the truth could spread very rapidly to the world. But you see, friends, there was another individual that had his eye on Ellen White. This individual's name was Stephen Haskell. And there's something to understand about Stephen Haskell. He was an evangelist. He was a preacher. He was six years younger than Ellen White. And when she was about 67 years old, he began to spend a little bit more time with Ellen White. In fact, 1896, shortly after her son's marriage, Ellen White found herself having to make a difficult decision. But why was it difficult? About whether to give priority to love or to her sense of duty when it came to marriage and her work. This year, that year, her longtime friend and colleague Stephen Haskell, who had lost his wife two years earlier, made so bold as to approach the widowed Ellen with the proposal of marriage. It was a very appealing proposal. In fact, we know it was appealing because some of the correspondence between Ellen White and this man, Stephen Haskell, it revealed that she wasn't opposed to their friendship. She appreciated their friendship. In fact, some scholars believe she might have been even more compatible with this man, Stephen Haskell, than she would have was with James White. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because she still sought the Lord's counsel. Her husband died. She was legally and biblically able to marry if she wanted to. It was no sin, nor was it a crime. However, she made an intense decision. I'll continue reading. They both shared together a deep love for the church and its mission. It's very clear from her many, many letters. We're talking about 200 plus letters to Haskell that Ellen felt a tenderness for him. Author and researcher Jerry Moon notes the correspondence with Haskell is, one of the, is the most prolific of any she had outside with her own family. In the mid-1896, she arranged things with the brethren and pressed an invitation to Haskell to come and share in the work in Australia. Haskell arrived and joined Ellen White in ministering at the camp meeting. Haskell stayed with Ellen White for about six weeks before going to New Zealand. He apparently chose this time to press his suit. Continue. In many ways, it was an attractive proposal to Ellen White, and she wrestled with it. The loneliness of 15 years of widowhood and her tenderness and affection and admiration she felt for Haskell were a strong pull on her affections, her emotions. The natural affinity they had for each other was, other was apparently noticed by a member of the extended family, Herbert Lacey, who reports that the two were very frequently together. Why? She was a widower. He was a widower. And they began to spend some time together. You know, where I used to pastor, I had this um, elderly lady. I hope she never listens to the sermon. <laughs> and this was several years ago. And she was a widower. And uh, she would always stand, she would always be in the church. And after, every time I was done preaching, she always came to me to tell me something I did wrong in the sermon. God keeps people like that in church to keep pastors humble. And so, it's not always delightful, though, but anyhow, 
she would come to me and we would talk about different things. I understood that discomfort she felt in life. And I never forgot. One day, this 80-something-year-old woman, she's, she didn't stay for potluck, and she says, I've, I've got to go somewhere. And I was like, okay, no problem. I'll see you later. She went outside. I was done with some potluck, went to go take some of the trash out to the dumpster, and I saw this older gentleman there in a car. He was uh, an Adventist, and uh, I asked him, I said, are you new to this church? He said, yeah, no, I'm just visiting. I came from another Adventist church. I'm like, okay, where do you live? Oh, I live a couple hours away. I'm like, oh, okay, you're just passing through? And uh, he was like, no, no. And then I see, <laughs> I'm just telling you, this is, I've never seen senior citizen love like I did there. <laughs> she pulls up. And she sees me, and she's just a gas. And I walk up to her with a big smile, and I said, hey, uh, do you know him? And she's like, yeah, I know him. And she would not even look at me. But it was very cute. It was very cute. And he says, yeah, she says, we're actually having lunch together. He's just a friend. And she kind of rolled her eyes. And I looked at him, he was just outside of his car staring, and I could see this, this, this older gentleman was, was love-struck with her. And it was such a cute thing, when they both left, I just was smiling and chuckling to myself. Anyhow, let's continue with this. <laughs> Something about the chemistry between the pair prompted Lacey to ask Ellen White about the possibility of marriage to Haskell. In other words, other individuals began to bring it up to Ellen White. Hey, what about, what about Stephen Haskell? He's hanging around with us. You guys seem to work well together. Continue. Duty and a sense of the importance of her larger responsibility, however, persuaded Ellen White that accepting Haskell's proposal would not be the best way forward. Although deep down she might long for the affection and companionship, she explained to Lacey changing her name to Haskell would create insurmountable problems from her publisher and from her identity as a writer. Can you imagine that? Oh, you're reading a book from Ellen, White, uh, Ellen Haskell today. <laughs> and the amount of conspiracy theorists in the church, what they would say. So you can just imagine, although it may not seem like a small issue, this was still a big issue. We'll continue. As she explained to Lacey, excuse me, go to the last sentence, the consolation she found came from an assurance she said that had been given to her in a dream. What was that dream? Her son, W.C. White, had been designated by the Lord to care for her until her work was done. God gave her a revelation and said, this man will not be the one who will stand by your side. It will be your son. And you know what's really interesting? Although, like I said before, biblically she could have gotten married. Legally, it was totally fine. And there were many who had marriages a second time after, you know, you know, their spouse died. This was common even in the Adventist church. She made a decision for the sake of the mission and the cause to forego this privilege. And it's a very interesting story because she made a tough decision because God was leading her in that way. Continue. Where does this story go from here? Ellen had early invited, earlier had invited a Miss Hetty Hurd, now working in South Africa, to come and assist with a new college in Australia. Now Ellen persuaded the disappointed Haskell 
that he should think about marrying this younger woman of their mutual acquaintance. Haskell dutifully obeyed. <laughs> By the way, I pulled this from a, you know, Andrew's uh, their website, had to do with their theological department. Obeyed and wrote to Hetty a letter of proposal. Can you imagine that? What kind of letter it was? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure we still have it on record, but the prophet has told me. <laughs> we should get married. Can you imagine receiving a letter like that? Right? Okay, we'll continue. And <laughs> Hetty responded at, almost at once. Book passage to Australia and the couple were married February 27th, 1897. And this is very interesting. We can sympathize and unite in the grand work that you and I love. Ellen White's writing to Haskell later when congratulating him on his marriage to Hetty. And I love what she says right here because it sounds like another friend zoning that's taking place. In everything which relates to this, we are united in bonds of Christian fellowship. <laughs> Essentially, she was saying, hey, look, I want you to understand something. Your marriage to Hetty, you keep heading down that direction. We're involved in Christian fellowship. I mean, this is interesting. Because these are very, you know, just these are human dynamics. These are dynamics of human relationships. These aren't something that we sometimes think, so people don't deal with that kind of stuff. No, we have to deal with this kind of stuff. And so she was forthright and she wrote to him. We'll continue. In the years that followed, the Haskells often worked closely with Ellen White and the correspondence between them continued to be warm and steady. The episode of Ellen White's forfeited opportunity for remarriage would probably be unremarkable were it not for the existence of another photograph. Just how much Ellen White experienced the cost of turning down Haskell's proposal may be indicated by the fact in her last years she kept a photograph of the handsome preacher on a shelf in her bedroom at her Elms Haven, Elms Haven, Elms Haven home. Haskell's photograph has joined the collection of photographs of the other men in her life, her husband and the four sons. The opportunity of love passed by in submission to duty was quietly treasured by Ellen White, it seems, as a memory of what might have been. And so here you see that even though this man didn't get this privilege of marrying Ellen White, and though her herself seemed to be affected by this decision, and you can sense that, you know, as this marriage was taking place, there were things in her own heart that were going on. Nonetheless, she was committed to what God had shown her, and she would follow through with it. And so this man, Haskell, married this woman uh, because of the guidance that was given by Ellen White. You know, when you study out the, sto the story of James and Ellen White, you see a very interesting story, a story full of struggles, a story full of hardship, a story of decisions that were made for the sake of the cause. And it's interesting, both Ellen White and James White had something to say about each other, words that are still powerful today as they were when they were written. Ellen White says this about her husband, or excuse me, James says this about Ellen, we were married August 30th, 1846, and from that hour to the present, she has been my crown of rejoicing. And what was her statement about her husband? 
I feel that he is the best man that ever trod shoe leather. <laughs> I'm sure back then that was a great compliment. <laughs> but it does tell us the, of the love that they had, the, the, some of the banter that took place. And they were, they did real wrestle with issues. James White during the marriage and some of his later years had a stroke and he became very temperamental. It's hard for a man that is a dynamo of energy to deal with disability. Nonetheless, Ellen White still endured and worked and wrestled through this. And yet it could still be said of them that they had a godly, powerful marriage for the sake of the cause. You know, I want to share with you in closing, just a little Bible story that's important to you and to me. It's a Bible story that's found in the book of Genesis. A Bible story that has to do with a man by the name of Isaac and Rebekah. And I just want to share with you a few relevant points for you and for me. And what I share next, it's going to sound like I'm talking about relationships, and I am talking about relationships, but I also want to say this, I'm not talking about relationships. What do you mean, Pastor Nell? You'll find out. Take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Here you have the story of Abraham gathering, bringing before him his chief servant. And this servant is a man who understood the dynamics of the tribe, a man who was wise, a man who Abraham trusted with his life and trusted with the future of the tribe. He tells this man, he tells his servant, I want you to go to my family's land and I want you to find a spouse for my son. And he made him swear by heaven and earth that he would not bring a Canaanite woman. He made him swear that this woman would not pull Isaac away from the plan that God had for them in regards to the promised land and the center of God's will. And the servant goes out. And as he begins to head towards this land, you can just imagine the tension in his heart to find the next bride for Isaac. And you can read what it says in Genesis chapter 24, that many prayers and praises came from this man as he pressed forward to this mysterious land to find somebody for his master's son, Isaac. And notice what the Bible says in verse 10. Then the servant took ten of the master's camels and departed, for all the master's goods were in his hands. He rose, went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made his camels kneel outside the city for well, uh, by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he prays this incredible prayer. He said, Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let her, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink. I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know you have shown kindness to your master. And it's very interesting. Before he is even done saying amen, lo and behold, a beautiful woman begins to make her way to the well. And the Bible introduces us to this woman by the name of Rebecca. She had a water pot on her shoulder. 
And the Bible says this, before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with the jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. And by the way, that word virgin can also mean young maiden. But just so you know, there can be no question about this woman. It's reiterated to know the kind of background that she has. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled up her jar, and came up again. And here you see what begins to happen. And this servant asks her for a drink of water. And as she brings the water forth to the servant, she begins to immediately notice the need. And she begins to say, hey, I will take care of your camels. And let me tell you something. Do you know how much water 10 camels would drink? A lot is an understatement. We're talking anywhere from 200 to 400 gallons of water. She didn't just give them a sip. The Bible says that the camels, when they finished drinking, in other words, she continued to bring water pot, the water pot to the trough, and they continued to drink. Camels begin to slurp up the water. And you can just imagine the servant just, his jaws drop as he's watching. And, oh my goodness. I cannot believe what is happening. It was as if the prayer before he was done praying, he, he, it was happening right before his very eyes. It was materializing right before him. And as he's just taking in the experience in silence, in contemplation, and you can just imagine joy in his heart, he asked that question, whose daughter are you? And as she shares the news, he recognizes immediately she is of the same family of Abraham. Amen? You know what's so powerful about this story? Is that the servant could have chosen so many qualities to pick for this woman. He could have chosen someone who was just beautiful. Lord, I pray you would give me a beautiful woman. She's shaped this way. He could have prayed, Lord, I pray that you'd bring this woman who's wealthy. She's got 15 camels. He could have prayed so many kinds of prayers. But the kind of prayer that he prayed that seemed to be a great understanding of his mission, he prayed a prayer that would reveal something, and that is this woman's ministry love. Think about it. The reason why he chose these particular characteristics is because he knew that the one that would marry Isaac would have to be the one that would model servant leadership along with Isaac to the rest of the tribe. He wasn't just looking for someone who was just merely pretty, loved to get her nails done. Nothing wrong with that, unless it's an ugly color. He began to pray this prayer that she would be revealed, exposed to him through the love that she had for serving other people. But here's the thing, friends. What you understand when it comes to ministry is this. And you take the lesson from her life. Number one, the truest ministry comes at the most unexpected and inconvenient moments. She was the only one there. There wasn't another group of women, her other servants that came to give her a hand. She was the only one there. She was there to get water for a different reason. And at that moment, 
She was ministering without any agenda in mind. At that moment, she set down her own cause, her own mission, and she began to minister to this dusty, travel-worn stranger. The second thing that's really important in that is this. Ministry done above and beyond expectation has the most profound impact. Can you say amen to that? It was through ministry, Rebecca was qualified for Isaac. You know, I never forgot this experience that happened to me. I'd become a Seventh-day Adventist. I began to, you know, minister where I could. And Anyways, I had this thing about my car. I'd always put a few of my jackets in the car. I just thought, okay, I wonder what jacket I'll use today. Anyways, my friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist and myself worked at the same place. As we're about to leave, went to my car, and this homeless man who had been outside shivering on that rainy day, he came to us. He had a real need, and he says, hey, do you guys have any money or blankets or anything? I said, bro, I got you. I opened up my back seat, and I was going through my jackets, and I picked a jacket, and I picked the jacket I don't wear. I picked the jacket that I didn't like. I picked the cheapest jacket I had. And I pulled it down and I said, hey, I got you, man. And I gave it to him. And he's like, okay. He fits himself in it. And he's about to walk away. And my friend says, you gave him that jacket? I go, yeah. And then he says some words I never forgot. He says, he looks more homeless than he did before. <laughs> and when he said that, I knew it was the truth. Like, I only had a minimum standard when it came to ministry. I'll just give until it hurts and then I'll stop. You see, there's something about sacrificial ministry where it's not just something you do conveniently. It's something that every person, every son and daughter of Abraham needs to do. You need to have some kind of sacrificial ministry. You may have a ministry that's easy to do, something you're good at, but you've got to have at least one sacrificial ministry. When you do it, it takes you out of your comfort zone. It's not convenient and it hurts to do. But you will find the richest and greatest blessings that come along with that. And the third point is this. It's often when we are in the service of God his providence becomes most manifest. What do I mean by that? This woman, Rebecca, had no clue providence was happening around her. She had no idea God was in the details. And it's only in retrospect from her vantage point that we understand that God was working. Same with Ellen White. With all the things that began to happen, she had no idea God's providence was being manifested. And when we are in service for other people, God's providence becomes very pronounced and powerful. And I say this because every one of us needs to get involved in ministry of some kind. Every one of us needs to minister. We may have busy schedules. I'm taking over 30 units right now. I'm working, you know, a conference job. I am so busy, and I have my, even my, you know, regular work, but I have to constantly ask myself, is there something else the Lord is calling me to do? 
I have to challenge myself, and you have to challenge yourself because God wants us to grow in ministry capability. He doesn't want us to back down. He wants us to strike as hard as we can strike at this part of Earth's history. Can you say amen to that? This is the time that God is calling us. And in closing, you can look at this beautiful marriage of Ellen and James White. We can look at what happens with Rebecca and Isaac. But here's the thing, friends. The greatest marriage we should be excited about is the marriage supper of the Lamb. If there is one marriage you've got to be a part of, that celebration, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. If there is one book you need to read more than all the wedding magazines, it is the book of Revelation. Amen? We are given insight to this beautiful wedding. Oh, man, and that honeymoon is going to be an amazing thing. Can you say amen to that? God wants us not merely to be guests at this wedding. He wants us to participate in that ceremony. And every time we bring somebody to Christ, we are participating in this beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you say amen to that? I love what's said right here. It's a quote that is said by Ellen White. It's a quote that we hear, but she says these words, with such an army of workers at our youth. She's not just talking about teenagers here. She's talking about the same kinds of people that built up the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Young adults, rightly trained, might furnish how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. How soon might the end come? The end of suffering and sorrow and sin. Friends, if you are serious about social justice, are you following me? You want to put an end to suffering and sin that exists in our world. The greatest social justice cause that you can be a part of is the work of bringing the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Can I get a hearty amen for that? It is because of the proclamation of the gospel that will bring an end to evil and suffering in our world. And God has called you to participate in this cause like never before. And He is calling you to pray prayers that you've never prayed before. To act powerfully for the cause of God like never before. This is the time that Jesus is calling us. Can you say amen to that? And my simple appeal is that you would pray that prayer that I have prayed for many years every day. And that is, Lord, use me for your cause today whatever it may be. Is that your desire this, this afternoon? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. You take broken, weak, helpless sinners and you transform them for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would continue to grow us spiritually and Lord, may ministry not just be an event, but may it become our lifestyle. Thank you for the history lesson of Ellen and James White. Thank you for their powerful sacrifices for the cause. Lord, may we be no less sacrificial. Give us the same energy and motivation you gave to them. Grant that to us. 
And thank you, Lord. You are coming soon. Bless every person here. May the joy of the Lord be in their heart the rest of the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.